Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, we're going fishing with William Hinkebein and Art Lander and their delightful little publication entitled A Brief History of Bait Casting, Bass Fishing, and the Kentucky Reel. On the back cover of the book, you will find this somewhat spirited statement. The Kentucky Reel is truly one of the great contributions of the bluegrass state to the wider world. The popularity of the Kentucky Reel changed fishing forever by ushering in the modern age of bait casting. Co-author Art Lander is a well-known outdoor writer, a lifelong angler, hunter, nature enthusiast, and freelance magazine journalist. Bill Hinkenbein is with us today, and, and I just want to say welcome, first of all, and uh, what a fascinating little book this is. I, I think the story starts uh, maybe for you, um, Bill, when you discovered a, an antique tackle box back in 1990. Tell me about that discovery, if you would, please, sir. Well, that's right, Mr. Goodman. And first, let me say uh, thank you so much for having me on to your podcast for the Kentucky Humanities. I'm very glad to be here. Um, so back in 1990, uh, I was with a friend in the uh, Jefferson County area, a friend who uh, had a farm, and we were exploring the farm, uh, just kind of going barn to barn, checking it out. And in one of the barns was a what looked like a toolbox, like a metal toolbox. And I, I picked it up and opened it up and looked in, and it was a, a fishing tackle box that I later discovered was the items were all from the 1930s and, and early 40s. And I opened the box, and it was just, it was beautiful. It was like opening a time capsule. And there are these hand-painted wooden lures and all these little brass and metal devices that a fisherman back then would use to, to tie a, a line or dry a line or uh, de-hook a fish or de-hook themselves. <laughs> and it was, it was beautiful. There were a few reels. And you could tell it was all very old. And what else hit me very strongly was that when I opened it up, you know, there was this, like, it almost smelled like a cigar of all things, because it probably hadn't been opened in decades. And it was kind of a stale, musty odor that hit me. And it just, it hit me because my grandfather used to take me fishing when I was a young boy, and he always smoked these cigars. And it was just, it gave me this great feeling. It felt like my grandfather, this was his tackle box. And it brought back these fabulous memories. And it just really hit me as something that I was fascinated in. And I asked my friend, Philip Blythe, what are you going to do with this tackle box? He said, oh, we'll throw it away. I said, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you very much. So that was the key that opened up uh, this discovery uh, for uh, a large part of your life now. Let me ask you to 
You've described what was in the tackle box. What did you think uh, when you took it home and began to think about uh, how this discovery could open up some um, sort of a new world for you? Yeah, yeah, Mr. Goodman, and that's exactly what it did. I, I took this home and I showed my wife, Annie, and I just impressed upon her how impressed I was of this this thing I now had and how it reminded me of grandfather. And look at all these, look at all these little devices that were, that people put together and that were for sale and that people used to go, to go fishing. It was, uh, I, so I, when I traveled, I was a young traveling salesman for our own company at that time. So I began to hit antique shops and maybe even estate sales here and there and looking around for more antique tackle. And it seems like, you know, every estate or yard sale has tackle or fishing rods or something. And although, you know, 95% of everything out there is not the grand old antique stuff, you could find items that were, items that were left over, over the years, over the decades, over maybe 150 years or so that were great discoveries. And so I then became fascinated in trying to find a great next discovery. It became a hunt. And that's how it began. That It really hooked me. No so, pun intended. No pun intended. So you became, um, this was your hobby, um, but a serious hobby. In fact, I would say that you were uh, became a serious collector and began looking for uh, other parts of the reel. And we're going to talk about uh, the Kentucky reel and how important that is to uh, Kentucky history. But I first want to touch on what you and your co-author Art Lander try to do and did very well uh, in the very beginning of the book to describe the enormous and important ecology uh, that was discovered early on by the uh, the founders of Kentucky, uh, the Native Americans who are already here, um, the the fish that uh, sustained them for uh, centuries. So you you do that so well by describing uh, the Kentucky that the early pioneers uh, explorers found. Yes, and that's a very important part of the book. Uh, Mr. Goodman, about the first 50 to 60 pages of the book was put together by my good friend Art Lander, as you said, a longtime Kentucky fish and wildlife uh, expert, writer, historian. And I found out from him and learned a lot from him about what a great nature land Kentucky was and still is. And the great discoveries across Kentucky of all the wildlife and the streams and the fishing, the fishes themselves, um, and the history of some of the Indians and the early settlers going all the way back to when uh, the great Dr. Thomas Walker came through what later became known as the Cumberland Gap when he came over in 1750 and began discovering this, this fabulous land called Kentucky. And uh, obviously it was remote at that time. It was uh, a land that uh, explorers had not uh, been into. 
And one of the uh, interesting aspects, uh, and I'm sure there are historians and uh, uh, experts in geography that uh, know some of these facts. But for example, the rivers of Kentucky were the only state in the United States to have continuous uh, borders of rivers uh, running along three sides of the state of Kentucky, which um, to, ha to be the only state in the nation to, to have that is, is pretty incredible. Not only that, uh, and you're here with your friend today uh, and our board member, Penny Peebler, uh, 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 as your sidekick and uh, a great friend of ours, um, 90,000 miles of navigable water in the state of Kentucky is, I don't think people really realize that. We're, we're hearing so much about uh, the, the droughts in the, in the Southwest and uh, the problems that uh, people are incurring in California. And here we are with this abundance of, of water. Um, what, what, have you thought for a moment in the, the quiet of the night uh, what some of those first early explorers um, found, uh, the the fish that they discovered, uh, the abundance of, uh, of food that they were able to, to harvest? Yeah, it really is incredible, and it's part of the whole American uh, movement as the, uh, the nation pushed westward and discovered these lands and native people and the wildlife. Um, imagine the early uh, settlers coming through the Cumberland Gap and through other areas to get to the Kentucky region and what they faced, the hardships they faced. We've all talked about that before. You know, they just didn't have any of the modern society things that we have. It was so hard for them. So they come into this land. They're seeking their own land where they can farm, they can homestead, and it's so difficult. They, they, they do have this incredible fishing opportunity with all these navigable, navigable waters and lakes. So they certainly discovered that there's plenty of fish to be had. And so they'd settle along the banks of these different rivers, the important rivers of Kentucky, the, the Elkhorn, the Stoner Rivers, uh, of course, the Kentucky River itself. And then because the, the land was so rich, they'd farm this land. And of course, they had to um, deal with, with wild animals and uh, the Indian people, which uh, they were not always friendly to and uh, vice versa. Well, in your discovery, in your story, um, you uh, talk a lot about, and I, I mentioned this uh, before we began uh, today, that if there was a... Uh, a protagonist, a, a main character. It was probably uh, the, the doctor, another another doctor that uh, I think, uh, if I remember the story correctly from your your book, he was uh, attending medical school at the University of Cincinnati and took some time off uh, to travel down to the Elkhorn uh, with a friend uh, to go fishing. Uh, tell us about uh, Dr. James Alexander. Uh, Hempshaw and yes. what an important character he is in the history of uh, Kentucky uh, fishing, uh, bait casting, uh, the Kentucky reel, uh, but as a historical figure too, and what he what he meant to the uh, foundation of what you're writing about in in your book. Yes, yes, indeed. Dr. Henshaw is extremely important in this story, 
And as you said, he was a medical student in Cincinnati, and uh, he took a his actual first fishing expedition was with a friend, and in uh, July of 1855, they took a 30-mile train ride uh, north from Cincinnati to the Little Miami River. Oh, it was Little Miami, the not Little the Little Miami Elkhorn. River. Okay. That was his first mm-hmm. uh, fishing excursion, uh, which is a tributary of the Ohio River. And uh, as they fished in those days, they would first catch minnows with a net and then put them on their, their hooks with their cane rods and rudimentary uh, reels that were single action versus multiplying reels, which we will talk more about. And he caught his first bass. And he was so blown away by the fight in this little fish and the, the, the excitement that he experienced in fighting this, this fish. And he describes how it would jump along the water and run and take his line out and then he'd battle back and bring some of it back in and they went back and forth. It moved him so much that he he then began fishing and studying and learning more about fishing and technique and the fish for the rest of his life. Tell me about um, the fish that were so prevalent uh, then and, and today. And this is not a, uh, uh, we're not going into the biology of the fish, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning because in your book, the, the black bass plays such a prominent role, but also at the time, as uh, in today's time, the spotted bass, and of course, uh, anyone who uh, puts a cane pole or a, a rod and reel uh, off the side of a boat knows the large and smallmouth bass. So. Um, he he discovered those uh, for the first time in his life, and that drove him to do what, Bill? Did yeah. did he set out at that time to perfect the equipment that a a fisherman would use? Mm-hmm. Well, what Henshaw did was he was he was so enamored with fishing for black bass all of a sudden, and a key piece was that during the Civil War he was he was a physician. And during the Civil War, he moved to Cynthiana, Kentucky, and he was a surgeon, and he would obviously um, help wounded soldiers and such, but he would go fishing any chance he could get and fish for bass. And in doing so, he, would, he discovered that there were these, these reels that were being made across Kentucky that were fine reels that were the best reels that he he has ever had and he he promoted those to all of his friends and they all discovered or found out along the way how great these reels were and how superior they were to any reels that were made in the northeast or overseas in england where most of the reels were were made and so along with his fishing he he would study the fish he came to know the black bass and researched the, uh, from back in the day when uh, the first French scientist quote-unquote discovered the black bass and named the black bass. These were professors that were even years before Henshaw's time uh, were professors at Transylvania University and uh, you know what a great university that was and is still today 
And so he became an author, Dr. Henshaw, and he wrote in 1881 a book called The Book of the Black Bass. And it was all about the history of this fish as far as he could find and research and how great these fish were over other fish that they would catch and all the greatest equipment that one could use to play the fish, enjoy it, and hopefully land the fish. Was the, the title of, uh, or the name Kentucky Reel, was it, um, was it a piece of equipment that uh, he discovered, um, or, or did, did, I mean, he didn't, he didn't make the first Kentucky Reel, that, that we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment, but how did the Kentucky Reel, where does it enter the story? Mm -hmm. At some point, uh, as far as we've been able to find, Henshaw, when he was in Kentucky, somehow came across the fact that there were these reels being made and had been made in Kentucky already for some 50 or so years. And these reels had gear works in them, which enabled a person to use this device to play the fish and reel in the line in just a much better way than any and all previous reels that were made that were singular in action. One of the things that um, I took a quote from the book um, is that the birth of the Kentucky reel, when, when that was first made, uh, and we'll talk about the, um, the inventor of that, um, but the quote is, Kentucky is where the practice of casting live bait originated. In all the fishing that's going on around the world, around the United States, uh, Kentucky is where the practice of casting live bait originated. Did Hemschel, did, did he, uh, was he bait casting at that time? He was bait casting at that time because they used the first American-made bait casting reels, again, that were made in Kentucky. There was plenty of fishing already going on. Um, the, in the New England areas, there, were, uh, there was a lot of fly fishing because there was certainly fly fishing going on in England and Ireland that migrated to the United States. And so those were single, single action reels where you would turn the crank handle one time and the line would come in on that reel one one circular circular motion mm -hmm. of the distance of, of the line mm -hmm. and uh, so that's fine for fly fishing it worked because you would pull all that line in front of you and you didn't necessarily have to have all that line on the reel as you were playing the fish but these bass fish were different the way that they would run hard and come at you and then turn and run the other way they needed a reel that was that was superior to previous single action reels to be able to play the fish. Now this all coincided also with the rise of sport fishing rather than sustenance fishing. And this all goes together because in the early days the settlers, you know, they had to eat. So they were using nets and signs, which is a net to gather any and all fish they could. But as time moved on, the gentry of these large farming estates across Kentucky 
they they would fly fish, but also they wanted to bait cast fish. So they were sport fishing. It wasn't just for sustenance. Mm-hmm. And that is another reason why these, these Kentucky handmade reels were so valuable. They were expensive items. They were sought after. They were rare. And there was only a very few people that had the skill enough to make these reels. So the whole sport... Uh, uh, Sustenance fishing to sport fishing developed over over those years in Kentucky, and it developed again around the black bass because that was the most prevalent fish in these waters. I want you to tell us uh, a bit about uh, George Schneider before we uh, we're going to take a break here in just a minute uh, from our underwriter Spalding University. But but let's start with Mr. Schneider, and uh, I think the date was. Was it 1810? Was that, uh, uh, am, I, am I correct about that without looking uh, that is correct. through the book again? Tell me about uh, who George Schneider is and, and how important he is to uh, uh, the discovery that you've made uh, a, a, a professional collecting hobby of. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a gentleman named George Schneider, and uh, he was a watchmaker and a silversmith in the town of Hopewell, Kentucky, which now is known as Paris, Kentucky. And uh, in Bourbon County, of course. And he came down from Pennsylvania and uh, settled in in Paris, Kentucky, which is along the banks of the uh, Stony River. Nope, the Licking River, mm. excuse me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in, came over, he was born in like 1780 and lived until the 1840s. And he was the president of the Bourbon County Angling Club. So he and some of his friends would fish, and they enjoyed fishing. And at some point, he came across, at that time, the only English multiplying reel that was made. Because in England, in the previous to 1800, there was a maker named Ustansen. And he really created the first bait casting reel, meaning it had multiplying uh, gear works in it. So they took the idea of a watch, like a Swiss watch with multiple gears in it, and put that into a fishing reel. And that created the, the bait casting multiplying reel. And so George Snyder, it was later discovered uh, about 60 miles from Paris, Kentucky, that an Ustansen reel, uh, reel was found. And so it is thought that he must have had an Ustansen reel and it either broke or he just needed more of them or he wanted more of them. And so he created his own. And so George Schneider made apparently, as far as we can tell, it's, I believe, 11 reels in his life, like the first 11 multiplying reels. And uh, again, he was a silversmith and, mm-hmm. a, and a watchmaker, so he had the skill to do this. Had the tools. He had the tools. And the skill. And the skill. Was um, was it called, did he did he come up with the name Kentucky Reel? No, he didn't. The, the name Kentucky Reel came later as a general classification of all the reels uh, that were made across Kentucky uh, that are uh, multiplying reels. Because George Snyder, star, who started this, 
led to other watchmakers and silversmiths and gunsmiths who started making similar reels and improving them along as time went. Uh, and then the whole general classification kind of just became known as the Kentucky reel. And these reels were made and they were shipped down the Ohio River to Nashville and down through Mississippi and down to the big French city of New Orleans where demand was high for these reels and they paid quite an expensive amount for these reels. Uh, so they were all generally known as those reels from Kentucky or Kentucky reels. Mm -hmm. And that's how the moniker came. We're talking with uh, Bill Hinkenbein, who is uh, our guest today on the podcast, and uh, his book, along with Art Lander, A Brief History of Bait Casting, Bass Fishing, and the Kentucky Reel. And we'll have uh, more with Bill uh, right after we hear from our great underwriter, our support for this uh, podcast, Spalding University's Writing Program. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing, Serious writers thrive with one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, where writing for TV, screen, and stage stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel to Paris for short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Bill, uh, there are a number of other uh, men, all men, sadly to say. Uh, I'll bet you in modern times, though, uh, there are many women who uh, are going to be involved in the stories that come uh, from this point on uh, as, um, as bass fisher women and uh, reel makers and that sort of thing. But tell us about some of the other uh, gentlemen who were involved early on in uh, this uh, quest to perfect the, uh, the, the reel and um, uh, the story that they bring to uh, the, the book that you've written. Yes, absolutely. So George Snyder, again, uh, as well as uh, anybody can tell, we've found, uh, the world has found, I think it's 11 Snyder reels of which I'm proud to say I have three or four of, ones in question. That he made uh, that he in made. the 1800s? That he actually made, yeah, in uh, about 1810 to maybe 1830. If I may ask, not what you paid for him, I'm not going to do that. I'm not that crass. Uh, <laughs> but did you find him in Kentucky? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh -huh. And I did not just find them. They were already held by some other collectors. Mm -hmm. Because these items have actually been collected, I mean, even back in the day, Henshaw started collecting these reels in the 1870s and 1880s. They were already collectible. People wanted the early reels then because they were still the best, although there were new people already making them. So they were already collectible back in the day. Um, so again, George Schneider made them. And then um, the story goes that there was a... a two brothers in Frankfort, Kentucky, J.F. and B.F. Meek. And they, too, were watchmakers, watch repair people, and silversmiths. And a certain dignitary, Judge Mason Brown, came into their office one day with a reel 
that was in disrepair. And he wanted them to not... He asked JF and BF Meek not only if they could repair this reel, but could they make another new reel for him and make it you know, even better than the reel that he currently had? Because he was quite a fisherman. He loved to fish. And he wanted a better tool to fish with. And JF and BF Meek were presented with this challenge. I believe it was in... Uh, like 1835, and they took that challenge on. Now, they didn't necessarily have the tools to cut the gear works. There was only one set of tools to cut the gear works in the state of Kentucky, and that was down in Danville. So they took the 80-mile round trip on horseback, no doubt, uh, to go down there, have some gears cut, and then bring those parts back to their shop in Frankfurt and using their own tools that they used for their silversmithing and watch repairs, they piece together their own first reel for Judge Mason Brown. And it was a big hit. Judge Mason Brown loved it. He used it. It was success successful. And all of his friends wanted one too. And from there... The Meek Brothers started making reels, and the whole industry really took off. Uh, after the Meek Brothers, um, tell us about, well, of course, Milam, uh, Benjamin Milam, was also um, uh, at that time period. And he did he learn the trade from the Meeks? He did. He did. There was a gentleman named Benjamin Cave Milam, and he was uh, a Frankfurt young man. And he came became a a associate with the Meek Brothers in their shop to not only help with the silversmithing and the watch repair business, but he became, as time went on, the most prolific, and most people think he was the very best reel maker of all of the Kentucky reel makers, of which there's about seven or eight prominent ones that were early over the years. So B.C. Milam worked in the shop of the Meek Brothers, and he eventually solely concentrated on making reels, while the other gentlemen did their jewelry business and silversmith business. So B.C. Milam is huge in this story. What were these early reels made of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. First, they were made out of brass, because that was a metal that was readily available. And then later, a, a alloy of metal that is called German silver. And actually, Billy, you're going to get a kick out of this. Some of the reels were actually made out of sterling silver. And there are a few of those still in existence that people have, and they're absolutely glorious and beautiful. And you shine them up, and they just, they're absolutely beautiful. They would be sort of the penultimate collector's item. Yes, would they would be. I hope to find one someday. So you don't have one of those. <laughs> I do not. I do not. So, uh, but, but you know um, that they're in existence somewhere. That is correct. That is correct. There's at least one famous one that is in a private collection. How does one uh, seek out uh, the reels that you don't have, for example, in your collection? Yeah, this is an interesting story too. Let me talk about in 1990, when I first started 
discovered these uh, antique collectibles, I soon discovered that there was a, a group of people around the United States that were buying and selling old lures and old tackle. And at about that same time, I believe it was 1990, there was the formation of the National Fishing Lure Collectors Club. And eventually, a few years later, the Old Reel Collectors Association. So these two organizations started, and they started um, having meets where people would meet up and buy, sell, and trade from each other. And starting, these people would do the historical research and try to find out about the people that made these fishing lures and fishing reels and other associated equipment and uh, bring the history forward on, on these items. And there were lists that went around in the mail, you know, the snail mail, uh, of items that people had and that were for sale or for trade. So I got on some of these lists and would receive these in the mail. And then eventually, of course, the internet came. And when the internet came, it really exploded because people could get online and reach out to each other through email and chat groups and post photographs of, of lures and reels. And more and more people discovered it. And therefore, more and more people became involved in collecting this stuff. And it became easier to, to reach out and find the stuff that you were really looking for. So it really exploded. And of course, it's just grown and grown. And of course, there's always way too many people with way too much money who have way too much time to collect everything. And I'm so glad for it. And that's what's going on out there. It's become a big deal. Your uh, reels are on display. And could you tell us where and uh, people who are interested, whether they're uh, fisher people or not, Yes, whether and, that's a the, the proper term. No, that that, uh, <laughs> that is a proper term. Uh, where the, where they can see some of these reels. Yes. So let me tell you about two things. Um, some of my reels are in a display that is at the Fraser in Louisville. Uh, that is in a exhibit called Cool Kentucky, mm -hmm. and the Cool Kentucky exhibit has been uh, set up for maybe a year and a half, and it shows all these different things that are cool from Kentucky. Um, Kentucky long rifles, um, various various items. Corvette. Corvettes, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, these old Kentucky reels. So I have several reels uh, in that display that shows a little bit about it. Um, but also, let me talk about what's going on in Frankfurt. Good friends of mine, uh, longtime enthusiasts on collecting Kentucky reels, Dr. Betty Barr and Don Clyer are collectors uh, and they are longtime ORCA or Old Kentucky Reel Association uh, leaders. Betty Barr has been the president for several years in the past and she hosts coming up this year and she has in the past the Old Real Collectors Association annual gathering. And furthermore, Betty has put together in the Capital City Museum a collection of reels that she pieced together from various collections that is on display now that just opened up in the last several months. 
and it is a fascinating collection of reels and other associated items uh, that was all out of Kentucky. Actually, her collection and what she has there is all out of Franklin County because hmm. that museum focuses on mm -hmm. Frankfurt and Franklin County. So I would suggest that if anybody's interested in this topic, they definitely go by the Capital City Museum and check out the fabulous exhibit that is there on Kentucky Reels. Well, Bill, that's a great plug. Uh, Penny's been kind enough to take me uh, through the museum, and on an upcoming podcast, uh, we are going to feature uh, the Capital City Museum and uh, talk with their new uh, director. Uh, it, it's a it's a great museum, uh, close uh, across the street from the Kentucky uh, Historical Society and the Thomas uh, Clark uh, Building. Uh, very accessible to uh, the public, and uh, that's where they can see the reels, plus a lot of other uh, wonderful uh, memorabilia and uh, collections uh, there in the Capital City Museum. But Bill, we don't want to leave this without uh, saying that uh, you and Artlander will be at the Kentucky Book Festival on October the 29th. Uh, this is our first uh, plug for the Book Festival, by the way, in a series of podcast that we'll be doing about uh, with authors and uh, books that will be at the uh, book festival. But I want to be sure that um, we get this in uh, for the people who want to stop by your table. Uh, you will have some of the reels there at the book festival. I will. I, have, I will have at the book festival uh, a few of the most significant reels from the significant early makers uh, to show as examples of the reels that I have written about in this book. And uh, let me say that all of these reels were made in Kentucky. Now, everybody knows about the famous Kentucky long rifles. And many of those were made in Kentucky. But most of those were actually made in Pennsylvania. Hmm. But these reels are all Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And the history of these reels just needs to be told. I love the story of it. We uh, are encouraging people who are interested uh, in learning more about uh, your collection and about reels, about the Kentucky reel to come out at, and see you. Now, if someone just happened to have a silver uh, reel uh, back in a, an old dusty closet somewhere, you'd probably like for them to bring that out and show it to you. That would be fabulous. And, and I always encourage people, you know, all my friends and, and collectors were always looking for that next incredible discovery. And so we see a lot of reels and lures um, so, you know, if anybody has a reel, bring it out. I'll tell them exactly what it is, who made it, probably what years, significant things about that reel, um, maybe what it's worth on the open market, of which it could be anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to, uh, to six figures. Goodness. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Um, so these reels, and, and let me tell you this, these reels, many of them have engraved names on these reels from over the, the decades, going back as early as the 1850s. And again, these were expensive items. They were made of brass and German silver. They had buffalo horn or ivory handles on them. And they were engraved for the person who it was made for. These were made for presidents. They were made for titans of industry. They were made for famous distillers that you've heard of today, such as Albert Blanton, George T. Stagg. 
They were made for thoroughbred industry uh, titans. Um, so many of these are can still be found in old tackle boxes and old barns, uh, and they have names on them. And one thing that I love to do is I try to find the history of who that person was whose name is engraved on the reel. But more importantly, what I like to do is I try to return any reels that I've found that are engraved to a family member that is alive today. And I've now done it several times, and that's my thing. I want to reunite some of these old reels with the families. And that's quite a challenge. And um, so if you find any old reels that say they're from somewhere in Kentucky, and there are stamps, and that's engraved, I'd love to see that reel. What a uh, fitting uh, end to a wonderful story. Uh, Bill Hinkenbein and Art Lander have written a brief history of baitcasting bass fishing at the Kentucky Reel. They will be at the Kentucky Book Festival on October the 29th at Joseph F. Booksellers in uh, Lexington Green. Uh, Bill, it'll be a pleasure to see you again, if not before, and uh, we look forward to uh, visiting with you at your table. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Mr. Goodman. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.